This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Mike Rogers. Good afternoon, my man. How are we doing? Very good. Very special podcast today. Um, Mike Rogers is the CEO of Critical Response Group. In all transparency, I am an investor of Critical Response Group. And my father, Glenn, uh, was the one of the original seed investors of Critical Response Group before it was even a, a company. It was just an idea, and was he was one of the seed investors. Uh, Mike was just telling me offline that it's already five years since that time. Yeah, it's not quick. And Mike is a, uh, a very special and capable person. I'm allowed to say that. I don't know if he would say that about himself because he's incredibly humble, but he's a former special operator, um, army veteran, West Point, New Jersey native, and a great guy that I am very, very, very grateful to call a friend and extremely grateful that I get to play an extremely teeny tiny part of his company. Um, but uh, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Same here, Jordan. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you. So before we get into the business stuff, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, you know, what it was like growing up in your family. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a proud New Jersey native, kind of born and raised. Um, and that's really where the family story starts. So my dad, you know, very important to who I am today. And then ultimately, you know, kind of the family backstory. My, my dad's a fifth generation police officer. So literally for 130 years, that's all everybody has done in my family. Uh, literally every uncle I have on this planet, you're either a police officer or a firefighter. And I'm the first one not to do that. So following 9-11, really wanted to serve in the army, was fortunate, got into West Point, um, probably because there was two wars going on and they, they lowered the emission standards for a couple of years and let me slide through. <laughs> I told you everybody he was yeah. uh, humble. That's a true story. And uh, but from there, ultimately, was very fortunate, graduated and then did five deployments uh, in the army, four to combat, one on a humanitarian relief uh, mission. And then ultimately got out. You know, was very fortunate. Um, got an assignment teaching military science at Princeton University. Uh, did that for a number of years. And um, it was a great opportunity. I was really able to take a lot of lessons learned that I that I was kind of was imparted on me during my military service into the next generation of those that served, and then ultimately started the company to take some of the lessons that I had learned overseas and then fulfill a need that I saw in the space. And that was you know critical response group was you know got started in 2017 and kind of have grown into what we are today. Incredible. Uh, when you were growing up in Jersey, were you playing sports? I was. Yeah. That's all I did was uh, play sports. So throughout high school, I played football, soccer, and I wrestled. Wrestling was my main sport. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was really my passion. And I learned a lot of, about life. I had, you know, a number of really good wrestling coaches at a young age that kind of, you know, instilled that discipline in me, much like your love of jujitsu, um, the discipline that comes with that and ultimately the toughness. Um, there's a lot of life lessons I carried with that. Um, and ultimately, that I have, I'm very fortunate. I have two beautiful little girls and I still try to impart a lot of the the hustle and, um, you know, the things that come in with that sport into their, you know, their daily lives, the discipline associated with being successful in that world. Um, so, and again, a lot of the things that I learned there carried me through, um, you know, helped me through West Point and then ultimately into the special operations community combatives is a big part of that world. And I had this really strong foundation from a wrestling perspective that was able to kind of carry me through. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you wrestle at West Point? I did not know. That's a like top tier, 
you know, division one, I have a bunch of buddies that were there, but I was not the caliber to wrestle at that altitude. Um, yeah. I actually did a year of preparatory school prior to going to West Point. So West Point has a special program that uh, they'll send you to like an all like a, a military college for one year to kind of get your grades up and prepare you mm-hmm. in traditional preparatory school. And I did a year of Valley Forge Military College. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrestled there, but ultimately tore my uh, left LCL, you know, really early in the wrestling season. My goal was to go to West Point. So at that point, I kind of hung that up um, and, and walked away at that point in my life. Yeah, it is. I was talking about that last night with a, a very dear friend of mine, Randy Brown, who's uh, in the UFC right now. Uh, doing well. He's on the on a four white four win win streak, four fight win streak. And a couple months ago, back in May, I blew my LCL and my PCL. Actually, right around the time that you and I had lunch yeah. with Kyle. Kyle Rogers is going to be on my podcast tomorrow. He's the CEO oh, nice. of uh, of CRG, and Kyle showed up in a huge brace with a torn ACL. And, uh, and, and Kyle does uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or at least he did before he blew out his ACL. So it's a tough sport. Wrestling is a tough sport. Uh, football's tough. And there's definitely a high injury rate. But I think that the lessons that you learn on those mats or on those fields, they carry over in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Kyle's just such a superstar. I'm glad you're having him on tomorrow. It's interesting. We don't think there's any relation between Kyle and I. You know, our names are spelled the same way. Um, but he, he did wrestle in college. He wrestled up in, uh, I believe it was up in Rhode Island. But we call him like the Wolverine because when he got hurt, you know, we were like, oh, this dude's going to be down for a number of months. And literally, you know, a month later, he's walking around in the office with like no crutches. So you know, is he uh, back to training? Oh, he's already back to training. Yeah, he's back to ah. surfing training. He's out of his mind. Um, wow. He's just an absolute superstar of a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. I'm pumped to pumped to talk to him too. But uh, yeah, so you're, uh, you're playing sports, you're wrestling. And by the way, New Jersey wrestling scene um, is no joke. I mean, it's a hotbed for mixed martial arts. It's a hotbed for wrestling. It's a hotbed for jujitsu. Uh, I had a couple guys on the podcast, a legendary UFC fighter, Ricardo Almeida, who is one of Henzo Gracie's first black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu in here in the U.S. And you know, he told me that he put his academy strategically in Jersey so that he would be halfway in between Philadelphia and New York. And the the, the number of killers that come through this region, it's, it's crazy. And <laughs> then I had another guy on the podcast, Jamie Giovasno, who's the CEO of Eat Clean Bro, another New Jersey business. And he was a big, big, big high school wrestler. Just like you, he he never took it to the next level, but it's still like a big part of his identity in his life. Wrestling is so it, it really is big in Jersey. I, I think we know about it. I don't know if on like the major, you know, and I'm sure in the wrestling world they know about it, but people they don't usually associate New Jersey with wrestling. Like Iowa, I think gets associated with wrestling quite Absolutely. often, but I don't I don't know that Jersey gets the uh, the credit it deserves. Absolutely, yeah, my from my hometown is Frank Yeager. And I, I think it's just ultimately the culture, much like being from the city, you know, you kind of have that scrapping type of mentality that yeah. uh, is good and ultimately in the, in the wrestling world. You must be a little bit older than Frankie Edgar, around the same, were you? Yeah, we're the same, we're the same age. Same age? Did you wrestle yeah, yeah. with him growing up? He was, there's three high schools in town. He went, we went to different schools. So I, I knew of him, you know, just being kind of the tough kid from, you know, across town, but yeah. I don't think we ever wrestled each other. We were wrestling, you know, either a division or, or a weight class above or below each other all the time. Yeah. Um, so that takes you to the military college and then to West Point. Can you just give like a little brief overview of the kind of uh, 
discipline and structure that goes on at West Point. Clearly, I don't think that's the typical college experience that they have at, uh, you know, Michigan or Alabama. Yeah, I, I would agree that it's not your traditional college experience. Um, you know, it was, it was a great college experience. It was correct for me. Really, I, all I wanted to do was go in the military. So it was the correct, uh, definitely the correct choice. Um, but I, I always laughed that West Point and I did not get along the whole time I was there. Um, so I, I did struggle academically when I was there, but I, I'd say it's because my priorities were not in line. Um, you know, really unique opportunities when you go to school, they're very heavy academic load, but then any type of activity you want to do, you have the opportunity to do. So I wrestled for correction. I, I rock climbed for three years when I was there. I was on a shooting team, like a special operations preparatory team where I got to shoot six days a week with, you know, tremendous you know, instructors. So I would literally, you know, get up at five 30, do a little workout, go to, you know, morning formation around 6.30, get breakfast. And then, you know, then you're really in class from, you know, eight o'clock until about 3.30, four o'clock in the afternoon with one break in between that usually doing some homework. And then as soon as I would be done with class, I'd run back to my room, I'd get my rock climbing equipment. And then I would run about two miles down to the rock climbing location on the water. I would rock climb for about two hours. I'd run back to my room. I'd get, you know, change in my different uniform. And then I'd go down to the range and I would shoot really from, you know, five thirty, six o'clock until about nine o'clock at night. Then I'd get into my homework routine around nine thirty until eleven thirty ish, bed down and start all over again. And it really did set this great foundation for me in terms of how to manage my time, um, and you know the friendships I've taken out of that university, um, you know, really served me. And then the life lessons I learned there, just you know, the, just the continual grind and persistence that it took to get through there, um, really kind of helped set me up for life. Yeah, I I can imagine. Um creating that kind of network in college, you must know quite a few people now who have gone on to do some amazing things, both in the military and now outside the military. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, about half my class is still in, half the class is out. And um, it's really, I'm still very close to a lot of my, a lot of my friends to see what they're doing. Uh, and really everybody's, the ones that are in the military are still being super successful. You know, a number of my classmates down at Delta Force just doing amazing things for for God and country. And then a number of individuals that are in the private sector really tackling the world. There's a tremendous amount of entrepreneurs that have come out of my class. Um, and that's really what's good. Just, you know, the relationship I enjoy with you, Jordan, is, you know, going to be able to wrap back and forth when I have a question. You know, I, you know, a couple of times we've talked when you gave me great advice on how to establish medical coverage within the company or how to establish, um, like, how do you, how are you recruiting right now? Like, I, I enjoy being able to come to you to do that. And then I've got a couple of peers of mine from the academy doing entrepreneurship that I can, you know, kind of bounce some questions off of. So that network I pull is very important. Yeah, I am looking forward to talking to you about a couple of those things. So the, toward, let's get a little, we'll pop back into that towards the end of the interview, because I do think that's important. It's something I admire about you tremendously, that you are collecting information. You are not afraid to just ask anybody that might be able to just help you a little. And, um, well, I guess I'll just tell the story now and then we'll, we'll hop back on the normal flow of the interview. I don't know if I'm prepared to tell, to tell this story, but I'm walking into 7-Eleven and I see this, this guy and a girl outside. They're working for the company Celsius, you know, this like caffeinated water. Kid says, you want any caffeinated water? And I just zip right by him. I don't even acknowledge his existence basically. I go in, I get my coffee at 7-Eleven, I walk out, this kid says, hey, do you work at Mixology Clothing Company? Just like you, for the people who are watching this, they see that Mike's wearing his CRG shirt. I was wearing my Mixology Clothing Company shirt that day. I said, yeah, I work at Mixology Clothing Company, I'm the CEO. 
He said, oh, that's so funny. My sister works there, Julia. So now I, of course, stop in my tracks. I turn around and walk over to this kid, handsome kid, uh, engaging me. Um, and we start talking. Turns out, you know, it's the brother of, of one of my great employees, uh, Julia Cutler. She's amazing. And I start chatting up the kid. What are you doing? He says he's just about to graduate. I said, what's your major? Homeland Security, he tells me. I said, Homeland Security? That's so funny. I said, later today, I'm going to have lunch with uh, two former special operators who started this incredible company that I'm an investor in. <laughs> so I said, hey, why don't you send me your resume? I've said that to so many people over the years, you know, mm -hmm. barely any of them follow up. Nobody ever pushes so, it. Yeah, so so few of these people follow up. And uh, Kyle Cutler followed up with me. I helped him. I worked on his resume with him. And, uh, and you know, I think outside of the fact that you and I were having lunch right in that time, he also, you also had called me asking because you were staffing up. You raised some money. I was a part of that round. Very, very grateful to be part of that round, by the way. And you had called me just offhand one day and said, hey, how are you recruiting at Mixology? What kind of things are you doing? And I basically, my essence was, listen, of course, you got to work LinkedIn and Indeed, but the best way to do it is family and friends and just putting <laughs> the word out there. Yeah. And it's yeah, in the back of my mind is one of the things that made me think to connect this kid. And, you know, listen, maybe it works out with him over the years. Maybe it doesn't work out with him over the years, but you, you called me. It was in my mind. And then this whole thing came together. Long story short, you ended up hiring Kyle yeah, Cutler. Kyle and stud. Yeah. And dude, I always, I really respect your opinion for you know, being able to pick out talent. And I think you um, cherish the same things that I do when you're, you know, interviewing someone. And it, it was clear with Kyle that he is not afraid to work. Um, and he, he's very charismatic and he was willing to learn. And right now he's on a, on a, on a work trip down the state of Virginia, you know, labeling and walking a number of schools for us. He, he has just been an absolute superstar. Um, so we're super, super pumped to have him. So I really appreciate, um, you know, that intro because, you know, who knows where it goes for Kyle, but I think you yeah. know, only, only up from here. I just think it's like such a great business story all around. I've told it so many times on training sessions and calls. A, he wasn't afraid to say something to me first. I blew him off. He easily could have not said something to me on the way out. He did. Um, he didn't have to follow up with me. He, he did follow up with me. Uh, when he was going through the job interview process, I told him, I said, I'm just putting a foot in the door. I can't get you this job. You have to get you this job. Mm -hmm. He went through the interview process. He ultimately got the job. And then something that we stress really heavily at my companies is uh, showing gratitude. Now he's not a part of my company, so I never trained him on any of this, but he ended up sending me uh, an edible arrangement fruit basket. Yeah. And That's I was like, wow, awesome. this kid is, he's good. You know, he's good. And he just graduated. So he's, he's very fresh. We all know that when you, when you just get out of college, unless it's from the military in West Point, you don't have all that much experience, but he was an athlete and he engaged me and he followed up with his resume. And I said, all those things are the, you know, enough for me to recommend you to, to Mike over at CRG. And I'm glad it all worked out, but Hopefully it works out for, for Kyle. He's got a great career either with you or wherever he ends up. I hope it, it I always hope and pray, but more importantly, I, I just, I love the whole, you know, how the whole thing came together. Yeah, no, we appreciate the introduction. He's a superstar. And, and you know, as long yeah. as he, he, someone's hungry coming out of college, they're going to be really successful. And, you know, that's ultimately where we're looking at one of the top things I'm looking for to hire somebody. Yeah. All right. So that was a good little pit stop on this conversation, but uh, <laughs> I really would love to, 
to learn about the mentality of coming out of West Point and going overseas. You enlisted because of 9-11 and going into a war. There's As you're learning how to shoot and climb, you must know in the back of your mind or in the front of your mind that you are going to war. Um, yeah. To be honest, when I was a like sophomore and junior at West Point, the war in Iraq was starting to slow down. And you, you go to, at least I did, I went to the service academy, not for a free education because I wanted to serve in the military. I wanted to go overseas in service. Uh, and I was, we were, none of my classmates and I thought the war was going to really end. Um, you know, kind of nervous about that. But um, ultimately I graduated 2008. And then really, as I started to hit the Afghanistan cycles, you know, the country was surging into Afghanistan. So just really hit the war in Afghanistan in stride, you know, very yeah. kinetic environment during my time over there. Um, but it was, you know, again, the right opportunity for me, you know, to cut my teeth from a leadership perspective. Yeah. I think we're the exact same age. You're born in 85. You graduated high school in yep. 03 and college in 08. Yep. Yeah. So we were, we were on the same track and I went off to, you know, work and you went off to, to war. It's uh, first and foremost, thank you for your service. I say that with complete sincerity. I, know, thank uh, you. I think more than ever where our country is moving away from, uh, gratitude for our troops and our freedoms and our safety. And I, we don't have to talk about that during this conversation, but it, it is, it means so much to me that you picked that path and did it for, for me and for everyone. And right. every time it. I go to jujitsu, I have a lot of friends in jujitsu that are in the Navy, in the Marines, police, prison guards. And I say it all the time, like these I go to work, I sell women's clothes and buy buildings. I mean, that's basically what I do. And these guys go and go to these jails every day and, and, and work these beats. And, you know, yeah, they put it on the line every day. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. And you come from a family police officer, so, you know, it's not lost on you and, and you served overseas. So thank, thank you so much. What, what kind of lessons did you take with you from West Point overseas? I think honor and integrity is one of the biggest things that get you really beat into at West Point. There's an honor code. So your, your character and reputation means so much while you're there. Uh, and, you know, they, they have the honor code at West Point. So you learn the importance of what that means, um, and the time management, and then, you know, the introduction really to leadership at a, at a low level. So at there, you're kind of doing peer leadership, which in my opinion is one of the most difficult forms of leadership. Um, so you're practicing that your entire time at, at West Point was able to carry that. And then really fortunate uh, my first couple assignments. So when I first came out of West Point, I was an artillery officer and my specialty was on how to control aircraft from the ground. So like I'd be the guy on the radio talking to the helicopters that were dropping us off and picking us up, doing medical evacuations. And ultimately, if we were shooting and stuff with like an Apache helicopter or a Spectre gunship, I was the individual on the radio doing that. So pretty yeah. technical. Um, so I had to go to Oklahoma for about a year to learn how to do that stuff, which was pretty awesome. And then from there, I went to a thing called Ranger School, which is the Army's premier leadership school. So you go there for basically two months um, in an austere environment. I went there in the winter, so it's not necessarily an enjoyable experience. You're outside for basically two months. But you learn how to lead individuals under stress, without food, super tired. Um, and it was a really I, I took more from that, that experience than anything, of, you know, really what is expected of a leader. And then my assignments after that, you know, it was kind of progressional. I got super lucky. You know, my first deployment was to Haiti in 2010 for the earthquake. Hmm. Um, and I was assigned a small little team kind of off on my own, which is unique at that experience as a young junior officer. Usually you're like mama bear and papa bear are watching me the whole time. And I was kind of cut loose to the Israeli embassy. And I was working with a team of about eight American soldiers and a number of nonprofits 
to build water tanks all throughout Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So like a really unique experience to teach me how to kind of be on my own and lead in an unsupervised environment. And then after that, I came back for about a month and then I went right to Afghanistan. And again, at that point, um, I got broken off from my unit and given a small 12 person team and went into the deployment on the, on the uh, Iranian border. So again, not under like the, the, the flagship of, you know, the, the flagpole of being watched by everybody. We're just on this like little outpost, which was a, a really unique experience for me to understand, you know, to, you know, it's kind of sink or swim figured out on my own, but I went from like managing eight people to managing 12 people on my own. And then ultimately when I came back from that, I assessed and was selected to serve within special operations. So, yeah. That's incredible. Um, did you ever read the book Startup Nation? Is I have not read that, no. Oh, Mike and I have shared books back and forth yeah. over time. You gave me a couple of great books and uh, Startup Nation is one I think you should add to your list. It's about why Israel was able to be successful in the face of ex the most extreme adversity surrounded on all sides. But um, one of the things that they talk about in that book is um, everybody has to serve in the military. And when you get into the military, it doesn't matter if you were rich, if you were poor, if you were light skin or dark skin. Once you get into the military, they you, you're it's a meritocracy and how much responsibility they give to these young people. By the time they're 18, 19, 20 years old, they are, they do exactly what you just described. 18 year old kid. Okay. Now you're the head of this platoon. And all of a sudden you're in charge of 12 people and you're on the Syrian border making decisions on the oh, front yeah. lines. And that mm -hmm. is, um, it's one of the things that they attribute in this book, at least to the incredible success that this country has had financially. It's like all these, all these kids, they come out of the military with this leadership experience. They're 22 years old. They haven't even gone to college yet and they know how to lead. I, I couldn't agree more. And I look at just my own personal experiences. Like when I did that second deployment, I was 24 years old, like off on my own on a, on a border with like a, a border crossing position. And it was just an unbelievable experience. And then ultimately I got into special operations. You know, those are about 120, you know, special operators, special rangers, special operations rangers. I was like 20, I was there between 26 and 29 years old. When I left there at 29, I was the second oldest person in the company. Wow. So like, you just kind of think of that, like how young the, the fighting force really is and the, and the leadership experience that you get, it, it's very unique and uh, definitely formative for me. Yeah. I bet by the time that you were 29 and one of the oldest people, you felt old. Oh my God. Well, I, one of the things I didn't say when I was on the rock climbing team at West Point, I fell and broke my back. So I was in a training oh, exercise. Yeah. I fell like a, off a of five story cliff to the point where I had to be like life flighted out and ultimately recovered. Everything's okay. But those injuries caught back up to me when I was, you know, 29 years old. So. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, it's interesting when I was 28, I, that was really kind of like a formative time for me where I really started to take the leadership role and run mixology when I was 29 is when I became the president of mixology. I was leading people in their forties, fifties, and even into their sixties. And I was like a kid, but I was at this very pivotal time where I was like becoming, growing from being a kid. And, yeah. uh, I had done a lot of things that my natural talent was able to carry through, uh, basic, basic business things that I knew that weren't, the business wasn't using bookkeeping buying purchase orders, just basic fundamentals that I added into the business. And the business had a lot of success off those things, but very quickly, my natural talent ran out and I was getting in fights with my former business partners. 
I was getting in arguments with my dad. I was doing my best to be the best leader I could be, but I was falling. It was very clear that I was falling short. And by accident, my dad recommended I read the book by Tony Robbins called Money. And that fund fundamentally changed my perspective on learning. And it basically had this moment where I said, I'm the asshole. They're not the asshole. I'm the <laughs> asshole. I need to, I need to learn. <clears throat> and um, luckily, I'd started jujitsu by then. So I was very familiar with tapping out. And uh, I went on this path of self-discovery through books and reading. And, and one of my favorite things to read about was uh, military figures, generals, uh, Navy SEALs, special operators like yourself. Uh, I found the work of Jocko Willink um, in his book, Extreme Ownership. And all of these stories uh, about leadership and the kind of experiences that you lived were formative to help me turn from a like a, a young kid into a man and, and, and really kind of begin to hit my stride and, and grow these businesses. And, um, one thing I learned, it's funny, you brought this up when you, when you were talking about being an artillery officer, communicating with helicopters. When I, um, I went to take this, this was more recent than maybe in the past year, but I, I went to go take a course with uh, Jocko's organization, Echelon Front. And one of the case studies that they brought up was about communications equipment and how bureaucratic communications can be in these large military organizations and being able to communicate across different different uh, departments or different branches of service or you you're in the you you want to communicate with the air force but now it's hard to do that and it never you know i i obviously can only sympathize with those issues but in the in echelon front his organization they were saying like these things happen in business and in business i found that communicating is so critical it is so important now Absolutely. when you're selling a dress it's not life or death when you're landing a helicopter it's of course a life and death situation yeah. but those lessons have been so important to me and so i wonder uh come now you're you're getting ready to to start departing the military I think you go and you work in going to go work in the private sector. H how is this transition? Are you starting to see parallels as you go into the, into the workforce? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. The, the parallels I mean, the importance of communication, I think are exactly the same from the military to the business world. And I'd say communication is really one of the most important things as a senior leader you can bring to an organization is to kind of remove some of the barriers and make sure people are properly communicating. We have this saying when you're talking to a helicopter, clear and concise is short and nice. So don't say too much. If you can say it in five words, don't say it in 50. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I was very fortunate when I showed up to special operations, <clears throat> now I had come out of the regular army and you, to your point, it was very bureaucratic, very difficult for everybody to communicate interagency, interbranch. And I was used to seeing that when I served in the, in the 82nd Airborne. When I showed up into special operations, so joint special operations community, they would you know, General, General McChrystal had transformed the way in which that organization communicated from high to low and ultimately entrusting subordinate leaders to make decisions after you give them kind of left and right limits. And I got to see how special operations manage their communications. And every day they call it above a battle update brief where they basically brief out the entire organization, all agencies in about 15 minutes, hmm. multiple different theaters, multiple continents, people log into a video call and they do that. So, you know, I'm a, I like to just kind of take what I had learned and apply it. So now in our company, we use a lot of the same, you know, military leadership communication styles and techniques that we learned over there. So like there's a, 
a weekly sales stand-up. There's a multiple times there's an operation stand-up and it's really quick. Everybody's going through their points, you know, their, 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 their points of friction and kind of resources required. Um, but it's super succinct and, you know, kind of flattens the communication. Cause that's one of the biggest things is how does the person who's at the lower end of the organization who most likely most, you know, realistically has the most important information that you need to make a decision. How do you flatten the communication? So it, from a leadership perspective, you know, what's in their head and what their opinions are. So it's about, I think, creating an environment and a culture that you can, you know, people are, you know, clear to communicate across all lines. There's a business joke that I sometimes tell to, to drive this point home. And it says, when you're the top monkey on the tree and you look down, all you see is smiles. But when you're the bottom monkey on the tree and you look up, all you see is assholes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, what you said about layering it and good communication and being able to get information from the front line, you have to try, you have to do everything as a leader to break that terrible cycle. You know, bureaucratic organizations and companies, the bigger they get, the more levels of management that get layered in, uh, the harder it is to get the real true information. And I've experienced that so many times where I want to get to the part of a problem and I go around and I ask everybody, what's going on? What's going on? Everything's great. It's like, if you're a good, if you're a charismatic, charismatic leader and you treat people well, then they don't want to give you bad news mm -hmm. or they don't want to give you bad news because they don't want to be looked on, you know, unfavorably, or they don't want to be, um, you know, the person that's always complaining. And so sometimes as the leader, you find out things last, you know, the last person to find out that actually these two people are fighting or these two people are miserable. And so, uh, part of building a big organization from my perspective and communication has been, how do you build trust at all layers and how do you create a communication mechanism so that you can find out really what's going on? So then you can make really good decisions. Yep. And, um, I, you know, so much of that was influencing me by, you know, reading, reading military books and, and even watching shows. Like I think that band of brothers, which was a Steven Spielberg movie did, did like an amazing job at illustrating this at the different levels. Uh, there was a show on HBO called Generation Kill, and it was also a really good book about the mm -hmm. Marines. And I thought that the book did, and the, and the movie, excuse me, miniseries did a really good job illustrating that you have frontline troops, you have platoon leaders, you have um, you know middle managers, then you it goes all the way up. And I think that there's just there's so many lessons to be learned about how to run an effective company by studying uh, by studying military. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, and I think really they they've created the system just over lots of repetitions of hundreds of years of how to lead in those you know difficult environments. So we, we need to be carrying those lessons forward. But I agree when you talk about you know the importance of communication and, and how flat it needs to be. I think it's all that's the responsibility of the leader to create an environment to create a culture where that's acceptable. And one of the things that we stress to our junior leaders in our company is that, you know, the people, the four or five people that work for you, that, that's your family. They're, that is your responsibility. And if there's an issue with one of them, the expectation is you make a decision at your altitude to take care of your people and then communicate it higher. And then every quarter we do like a company-wide all hands. Like, and I, I give everybody like, this is what we did revenue-wise last year, or last quarter, this was our burn. Like we share, overshare lots of information that right. people would say that you should not be sharing that to every member of the organization. We overshare. Yeah. Um, but what that's done is I'll also use that opportunity to call out great stories of people taking care of their people. So, you know, this person had an issue with a family member and this, I made it and you know, Billy gave, gave him two days off just to fix their family stuff and didn't yeah. ask for permission. Like that's exactly what you're supposed to do. 
and kind of just you know fester that uh, that environment. That's awesome. Yeah, that's <clears throat> that reminds me of a saying that I have at, at my companies, which is you don't need my permission to make a good decision. You know, if I don't agree with you after the fact, I'll talk to you and you're not going to get in trouble. I rather have you make the decision, even if it's not the decision that I would have made, or if I think it's wrong, I'll share that with you. But I hope our relationship is good enough that we can talk about it. Yep. Um, I want to share a little video right now just to kick off the conversation about your company, CRG. Um, I'm going to pull up this video. I think it'll just illustrate well. Of course, there's people listening to this, and we'll describe it afterwards. But I think this is a nice little, uh, a nice little video clip. Now, our whole company is based on adapting a technique used overseas, a gridded reference graph, GRG. Now, this is a technique and tool that's been battle-proof. It's been used thousands and thousands of times on every operation conducted by special operations. I've never gone out the door on a mission without a GRG in my pocket. And it's been used on every operation in the last two decades to include the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan. I've been shot at hundreds of times in my life. And I don't think there's ever been a time where I haven't had one of these GRGs or these maps in front of me. And you wouldn't leave and go on a mission without it. It'd be like leaving and going on an operation without a body armor or a helmet. When bullets are flying or when people are wounded and there's a great deal of stress, it's something that's extremely simple to be able to communicate location and that's, that's not, not that much, much different, different than a domestic, domestic crisis response. response. Coming, Coming back, back from overseas, we were shocked to learn that no one had ever heard of this technique or no one was using it. No one had heard of a GRG. So we went and found a way to make these products just like the ones we used overseas. The United States is far different from Iraq and Afghanistan. So we had to make our products a little different, tailor it to the people that are going to be using it. And so we changed them so much, they're no longer a GRG. There was CRG, a collaborative response graphic for local law enforcement and everyone to work together. We build these products with high resolution aerial imagery, a grid overlay, accurate floor plans geo-registered, highlighted hallways, and this takes all the guesswork out of communicating, whether it's with teachers, with janitors, firemen, with policemen, EMS, with whomever else, everyone can look at the same piece of paper they can communicate in just a couple of seconds. I noticed while I was showing this video that it was a couple of years old at this point. Is that still representative of what you do today? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, I'd say we're better at it and more efficient at it than we were when we started it a number of years ago. Yeah. Um, but the, the premise is still very much the same. It's to take a mapping technique used to plan special operations missions, and then we converted it for domestic purposes. And then through that process, realized that all the blueprints and building schematics across the country are inaccurate and not accessible and found a way to fix those and integrate it into the mapping. Yeah. In 2004, my dad took my best friend and I, Gavin Crescenzo, skiing. I think we were going to Aspen or Salt Lake City. So I can't remember exactly where, but I remember sitting in the airport with my dad uh, and he, he said to us, if you want to be a billionaire, you should go into education reform um clean energy or, or clean something clean and green or security he said secure these are going to be industries that are going to define the next 15 20 years yeah and um he hadn't made any investments at that time in any of these fields but over the course of those past 15 you know that was almost 20 years ago um he has made a number of investments across all those different in industries when he learned about your company uh, or the company that you were getting ready to start, 
he was so excited to, to, to have the opportunity and to work with you. And I, I'll never forget. He's like, you're going to love this guy, Mike. He's unbelievable. He's just like the books that you read. <laughs> and he, he made a, a, a bet on you um, when this was just a concept, just an idea. And it's amazing. That's five years has gone by and you have brought life into this company. And, and now, uh, it's not just for schools as it showed in there, but this is for any kind of public infrastructure, right? Any kind of building. So yeah. maybe you could just add on to that video a little and give us a little, uh, yeah, absolutely. So like what I was saying is, you know, the military came up with this mapping technique, Ethan, who, who's, who's kind of shown in that video was my, um, platoon sergeant in special operations. So basically the mommy daddy pair for about 60 Rangers within a special operations platoon. So Ethan and I had a, you, unique experiences growing up together uh, in the military. And I always said, if I was to start a trash company or trying to put somebody on the moon, Ethan would be the first person I wanted to do that with. So when I had the idea for the business and really the reason, the inspiration behind it was my wife was a third grade teacher at the time. Mm -hmm. And my family coming from all law enforcement, I started asking questions when she came, we moved back to Jersey after I got out, I was teaching at Princeton. And she was teaching us, well, if a bad thing happens at your school, how do the police officers know what know where your room is? So I kind of just asked that open-ended question. And we kind of started to peel the, the onion layers back and realized that the police department didn't have the floor plans of her school. Like, well, why? Like, well, they're inaccurate. There's only one copy. Why? And then that why turned into like, let's solve this problem. And I reached out to Ethan and said, okay, because he got really hurt on a deployment. So Ethan's a Silver Star recipient too. I, I don't know if you knew that. I don't know. So he got pretty banged up overseas. He was getting better. And I had this idea. I went to him and said, okay, if you make it, I'll do the business stuff. And we shook hands and the whole thing kind of took off. So it was initially it started just for schools. And that still remains really the moral underpinnings of the business. There are four states right now where we're mapping pretty much every single public and charter school in those states. There's a number of other states that are moving down that process where we're mapping either a quarter of the schools or something like that. Um, but after the schools start to get mapped, it really bleeds into lots of other pieces of critical infrastructure and private infrastructure. We've done lots of airports, lots of sporting venues, tons of high rises. We're doing lots of work in New York City right now. Lots of places of worship, um, parks. We're really limited by our imagination of the mapping data that we build. But what's different is we pride ourselves on being truly operational. And when we built out the company, I'd say we built it backwards compared to every other tech company. So we started as two rangers, and then we, we added on a couple of police officers so we could take our experience out of the military, then really understand the problem set that we were trying to fix. Like what is the working operating environment that a police officer, firefighter, public safety professional uses every day? Mm -hmm. So we had that institutional knowledge. Then we developed this thing to really hit, you know, solve the problem that they had. And then we built out the technical apparatus to, to scale it. Um, so we understood our problem really well before we built the solution. And as I've seen other companies in the space try to get in here, they don't, they're building a solution before they understand the problem. <clears throat> and that's what's made us a little bit different. But I say all this because when we build our maps, we make sure the maps go into the systems that are used by public safety. But, you know, police officer in the country today, they know how to use three or four different, you know, software platforms. I don't want them to know how to use a fifth one. Use the four that you have. I'll integrate it directly into that. So it's really easy for them to understand. And, and because of that, they appreciate it and they become, our, you know, the, the, you know, the loudest endorsers of our product. You know, that's exactly why I brought up the subject before of communication, you know, being able to effectively communicate 
uh, the most important information in your business, you are in the business now of being able to communicate the in a life or death situation, the most important critical data from what's going on inside of a, a school, an active shooter situation, a fire, some terrible thing is happening, a terrorist mm -hmm. attack, and emergency responders need to get to a specific point. And that's the problem that you're solving. I mean, it's, it's truly incredible. Yep. Um, and you're doing it in such a way that you're, or at least trying to break through some of these bureaucracies of having four or five different systems. And yep. yeah. And that's just, that's the operating environment. And what is really cool about the, the direction we take it, we, you know, is because we're pulling from our experiences in the military and what war has taught me is that war provides this really interesting complex laboratory to solve problems. When you go back to Vietnam, Vietnam taught our country trauma management because there were so many soldiers getting hurt in the battlefield. They had to reimagine, redefine how they save a life. Well, those lessons came home. That's ultimately what led to the development of level one trauma centers across the country. Before Vietnam, no level one trauma centers. Post-Vietnam, level one trauma centers. What we figured out during the war when I had the opportunity to serve was every night we'd go conduct a mission. We'd go to a location we had never been to before under stress. How would we communicate and navigate when you were lost? The simple map. So it's the same problem set facing our nation's responders. We just had this really unique experience on because we were forced to solve it overseas. Yeah. So now that you're scaling this business, um, what are some of the new challenges that you're facing that maybe you didn't expect or that you weren't prepared for in the military? I mean, we talked about recruiting as, as one example. What are some of these civilian problems or dealing with um, non veterans, non-special operators that you're coming across? Yeah. When we first started this, it was, you know, all law enforcement, all military. Now that's by far the minority in, inside of our company. And we're very proud. We've grown to this super um, just awesome team of people coming from all different type, all different backgrounds. We have a super technical workforce, a super artistic workforce, because a lot of the work that we're doing, takes, you know, an artist to go in there and make it look great. Um, and I will say that this has been by far the hardest thing I've ever done running a business, um, way harder than the, the military experience that I had, more challenging. Um, and I would say from scaling a company, scaling a company has been extremely difficult. We have quadrupled in size this year um, in, in a revenue perspective, but also a personnel perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a matter of, you know, how do you do that as efficiently as possible? How do you spend appropriately? And just, you know, trying to maintain the culture that we started with and grow that, that that's been a, you know, we've been very successful at that to this point, but it's something I watch very closely. Um, you know, but the recruiting is a big thing. Like we just literally stood up healthcare earlier this week. Um, so the point I was making earlier when I was calling you trying to figure out how do we do this? Cause there's obviously there's lots of books on this. Um, but every, there's no answer to every company. Every company's got, we had a very unique profile. I've got yeah. a ton of disabled veterans on my team. I have a ton of police officers with pensions. And then I've got a very young workforce that's age 23 to 26. So from a healthcare perspective, literally opposite ends of the spectrum, how do you put something in place that makes sense for everybody? Um, so that's been interesting. Solving technical business problems is, uh, is something that as a, as a founder, as a CEO can feel so lonely. Like I'm the first person to ever have to deal with these problems but then you remind yourself, oh, wait, there's literally tens or hundreds of thousands of businesses out there. And clearly people have, are solving these problems, yeah. you know, so 
sometimes when I get that, that feeling, I say, I've often said this to myself in my deepest, darkest moments when I feel like I just want to give up. If they did it, I feel like I could do it. <laughs> you know, I was, I was never, like you said, you know, you, you, uh, you didn't have the best grades at West Point. I never had the best grades. I, I was a bad test taker. I'm still a bad test taker. Um, I was great at projects. I was great at presenting. I was had a great interpersonal relationship with my teachers and my peers. I had qu good qualities. But the, the quality that I think I always felt I had was, I'm going to figure it out. You know, I'm just going to figure it out. I'm a tinkerer. Yep. Uh, my, my best friend and roommate in college, Sam Zeises, I think he did the least amount of work possible to get a college graduate, you know, graduate. And what he would always say to me was, I rather work harder not to do the work than actually just do the work. And it turns out that that's actually a really good attitude for being an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, that's no, I, I love it. And there's an old, uh, you know, Darwin was Darwin say, it's like the strongest, not the strongest or the most intelligent. It's you, the ones who survive are the most that are most adaptive. Yes. And, and I think that especially when you look at how your business has grown, like the last three years have not been the easiest um, to manage a business with a worldwide pandemic. You know, we map schools for a living, shutting all the schools down, not being able to, to walk them. Uh, every state had it differently. So and that was one of the main things I learned in the military was there's this old there's a saying that uh, no plan survives initial contact, meaning you could have like the best plan in the world. You start getting shot at. It's your responsibility as a boss to you know, deviate to be successful. Yeah. Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. Yeah, that's a fact. Um, my dad talking about those past three years is, uh, is such an optimist. You know, he's never had an operating role at, at Mixology, our clothing company. He's just been the 30,000 foot view chairman role. Uh, but one of the things that he's always been for me is just this force of optimism and pushing forward. My wife and I had lunch with him on this past Saturday. By the way, tomorrow is our five-year anniversary, my wife and I. Hey, congrats. Thank you. And he said, isn't it amazing what you've both accomplished in five years? You know, my wife graduated from medical school and did her residency and got a job. We had two kids. We bought a house. And it was like such a happy conversation. And we were only thinking about the good things, which is an amazing attitude. But mm -hmm. if you overlay that on the backdrop of what's going on in the world, COVID, George Floyd, inflation, you know, all the, all the bullshit that people talk about, Ukraine, crime in the city, you know, he, he never thinks about those things. And I think that's how you grow businesses in tough times, yep. you know, and yep. they, those are the, the best opportunities in business are when other people are retreating and, and they're, they're giving up yep. 600,000 businesses went dark on the heels of COVID and, the businesses that didn't go out are the ones that are able to, you know, seize on that opportunity. Yeah, no, I couldn't. Your dad is someone I respect. He's been a mentor of mine for a number of years. Um, and to your point, he is always so positive, so encouraging through everything. And he he's always looking down the field for me, um, which is so great. I'll talk to your dad about once a week. I'll just we'll have a quick, you know, five minute less than conversation. Like, hey, sir, this is this. This is that kind of run some numbers real quick. Um, and, and he's always like three months ahead of a problem. He's like, you should be thinking about this. What are you even talking? I don't even know what that is. Yeah. And then, you know, three months later, I'm like, oh my God, like he was a prophet. He's, he's done to me multiple occasions. And I remember him talking to me about HR uh, and he, he had this great comment. He's like, HR doesn't matter until you're at, and I was like at 29 people at this time. He's like, it doesn't matter now. It's going to matter at 30. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, no, it's going to matter at 30. 
And to his credit, like one person more, it really mattered. And it just, <laughs> there's been so many things like that, that he's kind of looking downfield and been such a great you know, source of information for us. Yeah. In his words, he would say, it's not that I'm a genius. It's just that I've been around a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as I've gotten older and I'm sure as you've gotten older and you just, you just have the answers to questions because of experience, you know, you, you've been through things and, um, and if you can, if you can give yourself credit for what you know, and then have a good understanding of what you don't know and go seek that out, mm-hmm. I, that, that's been a good recipe for finding success for me. And, and I know it has been for you too. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't be afraid to ask questions. Um, and we have this, one of the big things I learned in the military was this concept of humble confidence. Yep. That's really what I've looked at as like a really great leader is someone who is humble, um, but also has the confidence to come in there and command the room, but be kind of quiet about it. And, uh, you know, but be confident that, to say that you don't know something. I think that's an, you know, very important thing for people. Yeah. Well, Mike, what a, an honor it is to be, like I mentioned, an extremely small part, part of your company. I'm, I'm so excited to go on the ride with you. Thank you. Uh, I will always be there for you for any small thing that you need. Uh, here's the website of the company, crgplans.com. Anybody out there who is in a school administrative, or if you have a, a role in a local government or state government, uh, this is the technology that you should be using to uh, future-proof your location, building, organization against against threats of any kind, big and small. And um, I just love watching your story unfold and continue to grow. And and thank you for being a friend and now being a friend of the podcast. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Well, I will talk to you very soon. And if I could be of service to you, you know where to find me. Same. Always here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bill.